When one of my loved ones was hospitalized during the height of the COVID pandemic, I was understandably frantic. But in the back of my mind, I wasn't just frightened by the unknowns in the healthcare journey. I was worried sick about the unknowns of the associated healthcare costs. I tried not to think about it because, like anyone else, when our loved ones are sick, we'll do anything to make sure they come out healthier and safely on the other side. But for most Americans, the very real concerns about medical debt are also totally overwhelming. And even with health insurance, we might feel bogged down by our own and our family's healthcare expenses. On average, every American spends over $11,000 on healthcare each year. And often, we might feel like there's nowhere to turn for help when we're faced with these bills, especially when we're in the middle of a health scare. I know many of us wonder, how do we navigate through our confusing healthcare system and even more confusing billing system? I'm Dr. Neha Bhattak, and you're listening to Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. Many of us don't even think to question the cost of the healthcare services that we use. We take our bills at face value. We accept that the healthcare system is just expensive. But little do we know, some of these healthcare costs come from issues with our insurance companies. For example, one person's bill may be wildly different from somebody else's for basically the same services, but also from unneeded treatments and other wasteful spending. Investigative journalist and published author, Marshall Allen has spent over 15 years documenting how healthcare systems prey on Americans. He's made it his goal to help people stay informed about their healthcare expenses. He's here today to explain how we can all avoid these healthcare spending traps. I've spent 16 years as an investigative journalist doing stories about the healthcare system. And I've always done all of my journalism from the point of view of the patient you know, who has to navigate the healthcare system and then encounters, unfortunately, a lot of high cost and also patient safety and quality of care issues. So that's what I have spent the majority, almost exclusively of my journalism career doing is documenting the challenges that Americans face navigating the healthcare system. And I, I had some ideas for a book coming out of some series of stories I did for ProPublica. I spent a year, 2017, writing about wasted healthcare spending. I mean, the estimates now are that we are wasting as much as $800 billion, maybe even a trillion dollars a year. About a fourth of what we spend is wasted on things like high prices, administrative bloat, the complicated way we pay claims, overtreatment, fraud. So there's all these wasteful ways that our healthcare system is taking our money and blowing it and then demanding that we keep paying more and more. And then I dug into the health insurance industry for several years before the pandemic hit and really learned from the insiders, the people who are the actuaries, the claims processors, the customer service reps, the executives, the ins and outs of our insurance industry, and especially how it's perilous for working Americans in particular. 
about 160 million Americans get their health benefits from their employer. And they are the ones who are paying the most. And they are the ones who are really left hanging out to dry. The Medicare and the Medicaid system at least cover more of the bills for the patients. But it's those working Americans on the employer-sponsored health plans who need the most help. And along this time, too, the Urban Institute put out a study that said that about one in six, and it's even been found to be as much as one in five Americans has medical debt in collections. And so our high cost of care, again, we pay about twice as much per person on health care in the United States compared to other developed countries. Our high cost of care is unjustified because of all this waste in the system, and it's causing an incredible amount of harm to working Americans in particular. And so through doing these stories, I've done hundreds of stories of patients where I've gotten their medical records, I've had them waive their HIPAA privacy rights, I've called their insurance company, I've called their doctors, I've had outside experts look at the records and the bills to make sure I'm understanding them correctly and doing a fair story. And through doing that, I learned a lot about what patients could actually do to stand up for themselves and to fight back and win. And by win, I mean get the healthcare you need at a much lower price, at a fair price. And not everybody's getting ripped off, but a lot of people are. And so that led to the book. And the book now um, has had tons of success stories. And it's fun because I've proven the concept that patients can get engaged. They can save hundreds or even thousands of dollars per healthcare encounter when they check their bills, when they overcome the denials by insurance companies and all the other problems they're running into. And that led to me launching Allen Health Academy, which is now a health literacy company that I founded to keep promoting this movement of financial wellness for patients. And then I also launched a series of health literacy videos that are based on the book that I call The Never Pay Pathway. And my big vision there is those are available to individuals. And then the big goal is to get those to become a part of employer-sponsored health plans so that everybody who's got their benefits through their employer can get this base level of understanding of what they can do to avoid the pitfalls, the financial pitfalls of our healthcare system. So it's been a really fun journey for me and, and really exciting because I get to um, enjoy seeing people take this new information, get engaged with it, get empowered, and fight mm -hmm. back and win. That's really great. I mean, there's so much great information. So I would love to unpack a little bit and just what are some of your key takeaways, some of the success stories, some of the people that have come back to you? What are some of the key things that they found most helpful? Well, that's a great question. They range from really simple cases to more complicated cases. A lot of times people think that it's really hard to fight back and win and that it's something that's, that it's impossible to do. But actually, if you know some basic information up front, you can avoid the battle altogether. And I'll give you an example. I got referred, um, a, a patient named Jeff got referred to me because he had a lot of back pain and he was told that he, he should get a spinal fusion surgery. And as you know, and as I know, and as the research shows, a lot of spinal fusion surgeries and back surgeries do not actually help the patient. Many a times it does. But you want to make sure that you actually need that surgery before you undergo it. 
And you want to make sure that you've tried other less invasive means of solving your problem before you jump to surgery. Well, I, I, I have got a lot of experience backgrounding doctors. And so I helped Jeff find, he wanted to go see some surgeons. So I found some surgeons that looked like they were quality surgeons. And I gave him some questions to ask. The first surgeon he went to told him, Jeff, if you don't get this operation immediately, you are at risk of being paralyzed. And he wanted to book the surgery as soon as he could. Jeff went to another surgeon. That surgeon wasn't quite as dire, but he also recommended surgery. Jeff took a minute, thought about it. And the question I always tell people to ask in these situations is, what happens if we wait? Well, in this case, both these surgeons were recommending surgery. So they might, not, they might have said, you have to do it. But Jeff decided to take a step back. He went to physical therapy. He went to six physical therapy appointments and learned some exercises. He changed his diet. And he stopped. Um, Jeff has a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. And so he's about he's in his 50s and he changed his Taekwondo training regimen. So he was mm -hmm. training more like a guy in his middle ages instead of a guy in his 20s. And mm -hmm. lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold, <laughs> his back pain went away yeah. and he realized that he didn't need a, an operation after all. What he needed to do was change um, some things in his lifestyle and do some different exercises and stretches. And now he just shakes his head thinking about what would have happened if he would have had that operation. I mean, obviously, it would have been a huge expense because whether you need it or not, you're going to get the bill for the health care that you undergo. But also the complications, you know, there are a lot of complications with back surgery. And so by avoiding that operation, he actually um, saved himself uh, a possible problem and a, and a big expense. Um, another just easy one in the book and in my videos, I have I talk about upcoding a lot. And upcoding is, you know, when a patient goes to the doctor, the doctor creates medical records based on the visit. And I actually think in most cases, those medical records are quite accurate because that doctor's license is they're held accountable for accurate record keeping. So I don't think the real problem here is the doctors. But then what happens next is those medical records get sent to the billing department and billing departments in many cases have been trained by consultants to juice the billing codes. The billing codes are the, the, the lexicon of um, codes that's used to translate the billing code into the claim that gets sent to the insurance company. Now, let's say it's an emergency room visit, like it was for this um, young mom in Texas, a woman named Jenny Sisson. Her daughter went to the emergency room with appendicitis. She actually ended up getting transferred to a different hospital because she was going to a rural hospital and they weren't able to do the surgery there. But they coded it as a level five emergency room visit. Now, emergency room visits can be coded from level one, which is the simplest case, to a level five, which is the most complicated. A child with appendicitis is quite is a quite common medical diagnosis. It does not require a lot of complicated decision making. A level five emergency room code, you can just Google it. You know, you can easily look it up. And that's why Patients need to get an itemized medical bill that has the billing codes. That's the first step you want to do when you get a billing code. So Jenny took the advice in my book and she got that itemized bill. She saw there was a level five emergency room code. She looked it up online. She saw that that code did not accurately describe the services her daughter received. So she called the hospital billing department and she said, 
hey, I'm looking at my bill. This doesn't look like it was a life-threatening case with extremely complicated medical decision-making. I'm not sure this level five emergency room bill um, or code is the right code to use. And in that instant on the phone, the hospital waived her cost-sharing portion of that bill, which was $465. So by making one phone call, she saved $465. Now the hospital still got that money from her insurance plan. So what really needs to happen is insurance plans need to be watching these things. And unfortunately, a lot of times the insurance companies are not paying close attention to these codes. So the patient has to check them. Now, Jenny, I love this story because she took it a step further. Her daughter went to another hospital where she had her appendix removed and Jenny applied for financial assistance at the hospital. Again, many patients don't realize how financial assistance plans work at hospitals, but nonprofit hospitals are required by the IRS to provide financial assistance to patients. So Jenny applied for financial assistance. She was approved for financial assistance and saved about $4,200 more because she applied for financial assistance. It only required her filling out a one-page document and providing some proof of their family's income. So with those two quite simple steps, making a phone call and applying for financial assistance, obviously you have to know to take those steps, right? That's why I'm on such a campaign now to boost the health literacy for working Americans because she saved about $4,800 just with those two steps. So I've talked about a couple easy ones, right? But some of these are painstaking and laborious. And frankly, people who have money would not consider this worth their time because for wealthier people, their time is more valuable than their money and they just pay these bills, even if the prices are overpriced. But a lot of families don't have that much money. In fact, many American families, if they get hit with a $500 medical bill, they're not able to pay it. That's according to a recent Kaiser Family Foundation survey. Um, I think it was four in 10 respondents to the survey could not pay a $500 bill, would have to put it on a credit card. So we now have about 100 million Americans with medical debt, according to that same survey. And so lots of families do need to take the time. It's valuable. It's worth the time for them to do this. So this is a great story of a woman named Leslie Donovan, lives in Northern California, she went to Sutter Health for some ultrasounds and she got the bill and it seemed kind of high to her and she was very displeased. She called the billing department. She followed the steps in my book and in my videos. She got the itemized bill. She looked up the billing codes. She priced it. And again, now you can go online and you can look up prices. You can look at hospital websites and you can look at a website like fairhealthconsumer.org which shows you the average amount insurance companies are paying for those services in your area. So she could see she was being overcharged. Now I have a whole chapter in my book and I have a whole video on how to sue in small claims court if you're being overcharged. So Leslie took my advice, filed a case in small claims court there in Northern California. She quickly got a call from the hospital attorney. She was willing, Leslie was willing to pay the fair price for the ultrasounds, but in this case, just to make the case go away, they waived the whole bill. She paid nothing. So it, was, it ended up being like a $1,300 bill that got waived and reduced to nothing because she took that step and filed in small claims court. This is so interesting. So I'm a primary care doctor, and I am lifestyle medicine and internal medicine, and I've yeah. always worked in the VA. 
So very different set of incentives, very different, like, and just looking back, reflecting back, we don't really learn about this in medical school. Like I have absolutely no idea how much anything costs. And it's actually, when I was not in the VA, it was like kind of better for me to be like, let me have you talk to a social worker because different insurances the price for the same medicine could be completely different. Right. The price for a procedure could be different. Who I could refer you to could be completely different. So it's very difficult for yes. doctors and healthcare providers to even keep up with this. And I think a lot of people may not recognize that there that there's probably a step there too when you ask your doctor about how much is this going to cost, where they may not know the right answer, but to have them refer you to someone within that practice who can help you figure that out before the procedure. Yeah, it is ideal to do it before, but the system has not been set up in a consumer-friendly way when it comes to the pricing. And this is changing because now we're at a level of cost where the consumers are being oppressed and afflicted by these healthcare prices. And so you're seeing more and more where Patients are asking for the cash price up front, or they're asking, how much is this going to cost me before they undergo the care? And thankfully, there are some important policy decisions that have come in the last couple of years that are really helping with this. And one of them is the hospital price transparency final rule, which requires hospitals now to post their prices. They're required to post their cash prices, their Medicare prices, and their discounted negotiated prices with all the insurance plans on their website. Now, it's not in the most consumer-friendly format because it's just a machine-loadable, down-readable file, right? So if you don't know how to use that, now often it's an Excel file that I can open, and many people can open an Excel file, but you are seeing different organizations like Health Cost Labs or Turquoise Health that are now downloading all this information and making it providing it in a user-friendly way so that people can look this information up. And another um, really important rule that came out, and again, I'm I'm not remembering the exact name of it, but now health insurers are also required to post all of their prices. And so that's not just for hospital services, that's for outpatient services, lab services, imaging, all different types of care in all different locations. Now hospitals have been required to release that. So that's a much bigger source of data, which is much more complicated. But we have these tech startups now, these third-party vendors that are downloading all this data, they're processing it, and you're going to see more and more consumer-friendly price-searching tools available in the coming months and years. That is, that's really great to know. I'm, I'm just, again, kind of reflecting back. So I came to the U.S. from the U.K., where we had the National Health Service. So yeah. came here fully vaccinated, I promise, got all my preventive services done (laughs) And as a child. And then when we came here, we were uninsured for pretty much the majority of my young life. Um, And that meant we just did not use healthcare unless it was an emergency situation. Right. So this, you know, what you're talking about relates not just to whether or not you have health insurance, but to also whether or not you feel comfortable accessing healthcare if you don't have health insurance. Definitely. And you see more and more people who either can't afford health insurance um, through a traditional health insurance plan or 
they're going with something like a health sharing plan, which is not insurance, but it's a different model of sharing people's healthcare bills. Or maybe they're on an insurance plan, but they have a deductible that's so high that they're functionally uninsured. You know, if you have a family that makes, you know, say the median income is around $60,000 a year, and their deductible is $2,500, $5,000, that's functionally like being uninsured because a family of four making $60,000 a year is going to have a really hard time spending thousands of dollars a year on out-of-pocket costs for healthcare. And so you do, you have a lot of situations now where people are almost having to hack the healthcare system um, or they're just frankly going without the care they need. And we're seeing the, the bad health effects of that. Yeah. How does COVID, from what you're writing about or seeing the COVID pandemic one, inflation in general, and then the great resignation where people felt at least empowered to sort of get up and leave their positions affected sort of the health insurance industry? Because you're kind of effectively leaving your health insurance behind too. Yes. So I don't know if it's COVID or inflation or both. But the early reports about the insurance premium increases coming for next year are pretty dire. And so we're hearing reports of 10%, 20% increases, even higher in some cases. So the pain is going to continue for working Americans. Until employers and working Americans work together to stop this and actually say, no, I'm the one paying the bill. I'm insisting that you give me a fair price. This affliction is going to continue, and I'm afraid it's just going to get worse. Well, so what can employers do? They seem like a a bigger David in this than, you know, than the David of the employee. How can they sort of, what role do they have? This this might be the most exciting and optimistic part of, of my book and what's happening right now, you are seeing employers, even small employers, as small as 50 employees, or sometimes even less, changing to a self-funded arrangement where they're not going through traditional fully insured plans. They're self-funding, which just means they're controlling their costs. They have access to their data. They're working with smart advisors who are helping them design benefit plans that are breaking away from the traditional big box insurance plans So they can analyze their data and they can also help engage their employees in a smarter way about the way they engage the healthcare system. So one example is direct primary care. A lot of employers are providing direct primary care, which just means you have a single primary care doctor or a team of doctors with the same practice that's devoted to caring for the employees that work with one organization. And so it's usually a per month fee for unlimited primary care. And those doctors have much better access to reasonable cost imaging, reasonable costs for lab tests, because they're not running it through a big hospital system or another big kind of entity that's actually overcharging for these services. You also see more direct contracting. So an employer might team up um, with a orthopedic practice and negotiate a fair price for the orthopedic group and for the employer for hip and knee replacements or some other common type of operation. That can save employers. You might be able to direct contract for twenty dollars or $30,000 per operation, whereas if you just let the employee go anywhere else without that direct contract, 
I've seen bills for knee replacements that are over $100,000. So you can save an enormous amount of money by direct contracting, and you can still direct your employees to an extremely high-quality surgeon to provide that care. So you're seeing more flexibility now with hospitals, ambulatory surgical centers, doctors, other medical clinicians who are willing to engage in this alternative type of contracting arrangement, because for them, it eliminates the hassle of dealing with the insurance companies. The insurance companies deny a lot of claims. And so the the medical uh, community is also being afflicted by this. So they end up being good partners for the employers. Yeah, I'm glad you also mentioned the high quality um, piece of that, because I think a lot of people fear lack of choice. So if your employer is contracting directly with this doctor, or this is the the group of doctors that you can go to. I think that there is some concern among a lot of people that it's like, well, I should be able to choose exactly who my provider is. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it's actually, they handle this, I think, in a really clever and fair way. Um, They will tell the employee, for example, um, there's a union health plan in New York City that has done direct contracting for um, pregnancy and childbirth with facilities in New York City. And so what they tell the, um, the employee is, you don't have to go to this particular facility. You don't have to go with this doctor. You're still free to go to the doctor in the hospital that you want to go to. But if you go to this one that we're recommending, we will waive all your cost sharing. We will waive your deductible we will waive your coinsurance, so you'll pay nothing for your childbirth. Or if you want to go to the one of your choice, you will have to pay otherwise what the plan says you'll have to pay. So you'll have to pay your deductible. You'll have to pay your coinsurance. And in the case of this union plan in New York City, the service is so great because they have accountability and they have a relationship between the hospital, the doctor, and the employer who's paying the bill or the union health plan that's paying the bill. And so you're getting like a concierge style experience with great follow-up, great prenatal appointments because they're actually engaged and there's a relationship there and there's accountability there and they're tracking the outcomes. They're watching how things go And so everybody is winning together with that type of a relationship. But the way they handle that choice for the employee, I think, is actually very fair fair and also clever by waiving the cost sharing if you go toward the direct contract and then having to pay the cost sharing if you don't. Well, that's really interesting. I think because, you know, it gets back to a point you made earlier, too, where I think sometimes on the patient side, and this is speaking as a patient, as the daughter of a, a you know, a, a Medicare patient, um, is that when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you know, you can try, you have back pain, try weight loss, try changing your diet, or I can give you this pill or the surgery, which may, you know, completely remove your pain. Um, people sometimes themselves self-select for the more expensive service. They definitely do. And (laughs) and that's where I think there are some really interesting cultural things going on here in the United States with the way it it is a reflection of who we are as Americans. And this is part of, you know, as I am on this health literacy push, it's one of the big things that's hard to change. We're talking about needing to change the behavior of American patients 
so that they are doing things that are more evidence-based. Because in, in the United States, we sort of want to indulge ourselves. This is a stereotype, right, of Americans. But we want to have <laughs> the freedom to indulge ourselves, to eat what we want to eat, not exercise, indulge in the ways we want to indulge. And then we think if we go to the doctor or the hospital, that doing more is necessarily the better solution. We want kind of the, that quick, easy fix. Or on the side of the billing, we've been conditioned to just trust and wish that this would all go away and we wouldn't have to engage with it. And so my, my book and my videos really are assuming that the American healthcare consumer or patient needs to engage better with the way they navigate the system, with the way they take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think my hope here, at least on the billing side and on the navigating the system side, is that no one's ever shown them how to do it. So this is something new that's being introduced. Okay, I'm going to show you how price variation works in healthcare. Did you know that if you, let's say you need to get a knee replacement, did you know that there's not a correlation? Studies have not shown a correlation between the cost of the care you receive and the quality of the care you receive. So in other words, if you go to a community hospital and get your knee replaced for $25,000, that's likely to be just as good as if you went to the big marquee academic medical center with the big brand name and paid $80,000. And here's why you need to care, because even if you've met your deductible for that year, that money that's being spent by your employer, that's your compensation. And so American workers are not thinking about it, but their compensation is being used to pay all these benefits and it's being wasted and blown by all these overcharges and unnecessary treatment. If they knew that it was their compensation, and that's the reason why their wages are being stagnated and they're not getting good raises the next year, I think they would become more engaged. And that's what we're seeing so far as we educate people and as we show people how the system works. So this is still in the very early phases. This idea is still a radical idea, but you're right. I mean, people need to change their behavior and and people need to take responsibility. And in many cases, they can. I know in many cases they can't, but in many cases they can. To that point, again, I think people get very frustrated and doctors certainly get very frustrated when we have to do prior authorization. So this was a big, horrible word when I was, you know, not in VA. In VA, we had a formulary and we had very clear sort of evidence-based guidance around, let's start here because the evidence shows that this medicine is just as good as brand X and let's try that. And let's, and so it's medication plus time plus lifestyle. That's sort of the formula that's, you know, the, probably the most evidence-based. And in the outside world, it's not, there is a very, very real frustrating piece to prior authorization. But then there's some situations where it sort of makes sense because we do want people to go through certain steps in certain situations. So can you talk about about that? And why should I not just throw up my hands and, and uh, feel like it's hopeless when I have to fill out a prior authorization form? What can we well, do? Well, I don't think anybody... <laughs> It would be difficult to to convince a doctor that prior authorization is not hopeless because it is a difficult, difficult situation. And 
my, as I've talked to people about prior authorization, what I found is they should be able to greenlight doctors who have shown a practice of doing the right thing consistently. They have the data, they have the ability to do that, but by making, by treating every doctor or every clinician the same, you end up penalizing all the doctors who do take the less invasive approach before they go to the most extreme and most expensive approach. And what tends to happen is those good doctors who do it the right way are still forced to go through this timely, um, costly. I mean, we're talking about hours per week that doctors end up spending on prior authorization where they have to get something approved. And in the end, they do get it approved. But at a certain extent, to a certain extent, many of these doctors could be greenlighted because they've been shown to practice in a way that's evidence-based and is reasonable all along the way. So this, this prior authorization process, as I've talked to lots of experts about it, is really wasting a lot of time for a lot of doctors. Now, there are certainly cases and examples where overtreatment is a definite problem. It's a massive problem. Um, and prior authorization might prevent um, some overtreatment. So it's not that it's completely without justification. It's just that when you make everybody do the same thing every time, it creates real problems. You also see cases for patients where in some cases, patients only do well on a certain medication. But if they have the fail first mindset, and let's say you switch insurance plans from one year to the next, I've heard of cases where patients have had to fail first again and again on the same medications that they've already shown not to be effective for them. That's dangerous for patients. That's patients not getting the medication they need. And so this process of prior authorization can often turn into insurance companies practicing medicine instead of the doctors practicing medicine. And it's an incredible burden for the patients and very frustrating for the patients the good news is that eventually, in most cases, from what I've seen, the good guy ends up winning. You know, you're able to get the care approved, but only after you have spent an extreme amount of time and effort, exhausting time and effort to get the care approved. That's not good. That's causing moral injury to those doctors who have to go through that process. And the same is happening to those patients. The way you've explained it is completely accurate. And my husband is a, a doctor not in the VA system. And I think that that is one of the key pieces that just is incredibly stressful for him, where he's sort of like, I've worked through this with my patient. This might be a new insurance for my, my patient. I've already gone through this. I've documented it. I cannot spend hours and hours trying to convince this bloated additional system of, of what needs to happen. So that is, that is very true. That's what's making more doctors open to these direct contracting relationships where they have a relationship, they have a protocol, it's understood. And so you don't have to have a fight every time the patient, you know, the doctor recommends this particular procedure or test or drug. You don't have to have a fight about it every time if you've already had this direct contracting relationship put in place and the doctor gets paid on the spot. Because another big problem for doctors and hospitals is getting paid by insurance companies after they've provided the care. You look at the rejection rates on claims. I've, I've seen 10, 20, 30 percent rejection rates on claims. Now, I know maybe the claims are not filled out correctly, 
but it's hard to believe that they're not filled out correctly that amount of the time. Now, I haven't done a deep dive investigating that whole process, but I'm amazed when I see the rejection rates for certain insurance companies on medical claims that get submitted. And so that helps under, helps you understand why those hospitals and doctors would be open to a direct contracting type of relationship. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're definitely in a situation untenable at this point and, and for many years and flat, uh, some flattening of this sort of bloated infrastructure, um, it, it just won't make sense otherwise. We have so many healthcare providers, nurses, so many people just leaving medicine altogether because it's like, as you said, it induces moral injury for a lot of people. It's not conducive to why we went into medicine, which is to do no harm and to help people. Right. And I think a lot of, especially during COVID, um, a lot of health professionals saw how hard it was to provide care for their own families in, in these systems. So I think um, all of that together, hopefully with the work that you're doing to educate people about why you know, why we don't want to pill for every ill mentality, but then how do we navigate the the health system to get what we need in a high quality way is, is so key. Well, I do have great hope. I know, I know it's sort of a silver lining to a big cloud, but I do have great hope that when employers and employees understand the challenge that's ahead of them, but then team up with really smart advisors to redesign their health benefits they can provide much, much better healthcare benefits at a much, much lower price for the employer and the employees. So it is possible. The concept has been proven enough times that employers and working Americans can get much better benefits at a much lower price. They just can't do it by going through the exact same process that everybody traditionally has been going through for the last couple of decades. But to me, there is a massive disruption coming to our healthcare industry. I think all of the ingredients are there or several key ingredients are there and it's already been solved. And so you're seeing the solutions getting more and more attention. And I mean, another sign, just look at the interest in my book and in my health literacy videos. I mean, when you talk to people about healthcare, their eyes tend to glaze over. They don't, they don't get engaged. And I know this as an author and as a writer, most stories I write, people really don't care about, you know, they don't read it that, you know, you go to a cocktail party, <laughs> you start talking about your article, you can tell people are bored so fast that you just have to change the subject. But when I start telling people what I'm doing with never pay the first bill or the never pay pathway videos, they are immediately engaged. And not only that, they are so fired up because everybody has a story. They have a story of themselves or they have a story of someone they love and care about who's been overcharged, overpriced. Mm -hmm. And so people are very animated. They're very agitated. They're looking for solutions right now. And I think that does bring a lot of hope for change. That's great. I'm, and it's so exciting to talk to you about the role you're playing in that change. So, so appreciate the work you're doing. Anything you wish I had asked that I didn't ask? Well, just that if people want information about the videos, they can go to allenhealthacademy.com. And of course, the book is available wherever books are sold. It's never pay the first bill. And also, people can reach out to me. My website is marshallallen.com. And I invite people, if you're having a billing problem or if you're having a hassle with your insurance company, 
I love to help people. I don't charge anything for it. Reach out to me and I will point you in the right direction. I'll do whatever I can to help you navigate it because it can feel really helpless and people just don't quite know where to start. And so people are always free to reach out to me. Oh, one other, one other thing I want to point out, my newsletter. I have a free newsletter. Sorry. It's at <laughs> yeah. marshallallen.substack.com. And in that newsletter, I also send out what I call victory stories, which are examples of individuals, kind of David beating Goliath, right? Just a regular patient who learns the way to navigate the system and save a lot of money on the healthcare um, that they need or received. So I encourage people, please also sign up for the newsletter. That's great. Thank you. That's very actionable, which as a, a doctor, I love actionable health information and, and health literacy. So this is great. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This has been a pleasure for me. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. If you want to learn more about Marshall Allen and his advice to stay savvy with healthcare expenses, visit marshallallen.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Bartuk, Chief Physician Editor of Health and Lifestyle Medicine, and I want everyone to have the knowledge to navigate our healthcare system's costs. Mm-hmm.